Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have David Lee. He's a principal at Ivanta Ventures. David, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kevin. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on the show. I think, well, the types of companies that you guys invest in is a little bit different. And I love how they're really complementary to each other. But maybe before we get into all that, Let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Yeah. Um, number one, Kevin, thanks again for having me. Um, so my background, uh, I, I was born in China in Beijing oh, cool. and moved to the U.S. when I was uh, eight years old and basically grew up in, uh, in sunny San Diego and have spent kind of most of my life since in California. I'm based in the Bay Area now and have been here close to 15 years now. So it's been a while. Very cool, man. So you went to university. What did you take and why? Yeah. Um, so I went to UC Berkeley for undergrad, uh, okay. studied business there. Um, was always interested in business from the get-go. I was the kid who had a lemonade stand during the summers. I peddled Pokemon cards to other kids on the playground. And That's awesome. <laughs> so at Berkeley, you know, I studied business and kind of did a series of kind of internships during the summers, a lot of which helped me figure out what I didn't want to do. Um, I started during my freshman year cold calling for Merrill Lynch in their uh, wealth management division and was was literally dialing for dollars at, at that point. And I don't think I've been told no more in my uh, <laughs> more times in my entire lifetime. So, uh, <laughs> But you probably I, learned a ton from that. Sorry to interrupt you. No, yeah, absolutely. Um, you you, you kind of learn to uh, have a tough skin, right? And oh. uh, you know, and be okay with the, with the rejections. And I think sales is actually an incredibly valuable skill um, to build. And so, it, you know, overall, I, I would say it was an interesting experience, but it, it did leave a, a vivid impression that I didn't want to be a, a personal financial advisor. Uh, <laughs> sure. Um, but it, it did get me really interested in kind of investing and in the finance side of things. So over the course of the next couple of years during school, I spent my time trying to understand the space I worked at kind of KKR for a summer and got to see the inner workings of a phenomenal private equity firm. I worked at a small growth equity fund. And at each of these places, you know, I, I'd asked for advice and kind of the common theme that I heard over and over again was, hey, go do investment banking um, because it really helps you kind of build that foundation and skill set that you'll need to be successful. So that's how I ultimately kind of uh, started my career uh, post-graduation. Okay, interesting. So walk us through the rest of your career, getting your MBA, and then I want to dive into Avanta. Yeah. Um, so it's been a little bit of a kind of a winding road and journey to, uh, to where I am today, but um, started my career kind of uh, doing investment banking at Lazard uh, in M&A. Okay. Had the opportunity to kind of work with clients of all different sizes, right? So from large multinational corporations to, to kind of venture back startups and 
realized pretty quickly that I gravitated much more toward those early stage transactions where it really was about kind of product innovation versus more of what I thought of kind of the financial engineering elements with more mature companies. So from there, uh, post Lazard, I joined a venture capital fund called Longitude Capital, where I invested mostly in growth stage companies. So kind of series BCD, uh, just had a tremendous time there learning the venture business from some of the sharpest folks in the field, but also kind of always felt this itch to do something kind of more product and, and, and entrepreneurship oriented. So post-longitude, I made the leap and joined an enterprise software company called Pivotal on the product side. Right. And there I spent most of my time working on developer tools, backend infrastructure, Cloud Foundry was the product I was working on. And during that time, uh, I also got my MBA at Wharton. And that's kind of where I met my current partner, uh, Sanjeev, at a Wharton event. And we just kind of hit it off right away because our backgrounds were, were so similar. You know, we, we both did banking, both worked in VC, both spent time on the product side. And Sanjeev's pitch to me uh, for joining him was always, hey, I'm, I'm building this brand new venture firm. Come join me as kind of one of the very first employees and we'll build this thing together. And that seemed like a cool proposition. Um, and the other part of it was kind of the industries that we were going to be focusing on, one of which was uh, it is uh, transportation and mobility. And, you know, I, I've been a car guy for, well, <laughs> forever. And, you know, getting to, to, to nerd out about stuff I do outside of work for work seemed really cool. So I joined uh, Avanta Ventures in 2018. Um, it's kind of hard to believe that it's been uh, four years now. It feels like the pandemic has distorted time a little bit, but totally. it's, been a, it's been a lot of fun and uh, it's just kind of flown by. Okay. Let's dive into the types of companies you invest in, and then maybe we'll give some examples. Yeah, totally. Um, might be helpful to just give a little bit of background on Avanta as well, Kevin. So, sure. you know, uh, at the core, Avanta Ventures is the venture fund of CSAA, which is one of the insurers within the broader AAA ecosystem. So roadside assistance, batteries, all that jazz. Um, wow. We're early stage investors, so our sweet spot is kind of Series A and Series B businesses. We tend to be quite focused from an investment perspective in terms of the industries that we invest in. So the two primary focus areas, one is mobility, so everything transportation related from connected autonomous vehicles to infrastructure to supply chain logistics. Uh, the other area for us is fintech, with insurtech being kind of the key pillar there. and we've kind of really invested up and down the insurance value chain from full stack insurers like Kin to MGAs like Cowbell Cyber to more kind of software solutions like Cape Analytics. Um, but, you know, we've also invested quite broadly within fintech as well in terms of payments, lending, real estate mortgages, title, um, and also love to help drive interesting partnership opportunities for our portfolio companies, whether that's from an insurance partnership side with CSAA whether that's, uh, you know, introducing them to the broader AAA ecosystem from a distribution perspective, all of the above. Uh, we've made 15 investments to date, um, very uh, much actively investing and are now kind of deploying out of our second fund. Very cool. Okay. So can you maybe give us some examples of companies that you've invested in and what they do? Sure. So, um, 
One of the more recent investments we made was in a company called Overhaul. So they okay. provide a supply chain visibility and risk management platform that enables large enterprise customers to kind of manage their shipments more effectively. And, you know, I think when you take a step back to look at this broader space, you start to see that supply chains are extraordinarily complex and, you know, we just don't see it. We click the buy now button on Amazon and kind of the, the package arrives in, in two days on our doorstep. <laughs> but what, what we don't see is actually that web of stakeholders and the massive logistics ecosystem involved in order to get that package to us. And, you know, a more complicated product, uh, like, a, like an airplane, for example, the Boeing 787, I think, has over 500 suppliers across 10 countries uh, working together to source, manufacture, transport about 2 million parts. So that gives you a sense of what, what, what why supply chains are so complex. Yeah. And all of that has only been kind of made more clear over the last two years by COVID and more recently by all that's going on in Ukraine. But right. as a result of all this, the supply chain management function has gone from a more behind the scenes department into a board level issue at, at most of these large companies. And what they're looking for are ways to kind of integrate all the systems together across multiple parties within the ecosystem, from the warehouse to the trucking provider in Asia, to the cargo ship, uh, to the trucking carrier in the US, you know, all the way to the end consumer. And more importantly, you know, they want to be able to anticipate disruption and handle any issues that arise in kind of an automated fashion in real time. And so that is exactly what Overhaul provides. So uh, Overhaul's platform integrates with all of the various systems from the uh, ERP to the transportation management system, to the warehouse management system, to all the sensors that uh, these shippers are deploying. Um, and it provides kind of these enterprises with a real-time view on location and condition of the shipment. But then they go a step beyond that to automate the handling of exceptions in real time as well. So a, a good example is uh, what happens if they detect a route deviation. And, and this actually happened to one of their customers where they noticed at 2 a.m. in the morning, there was a detachment of the tractor and trailer. So oh, wow. separation of the goods, right? And they immediately kind of notified all parties involved from the shipper to the trucking dispatcher to the driver uh, that, hey, there's something you know going on here. But then because of the integrations that overall, Overhaul has uh, with local law enforcement as well, they actually confirmed that load was being stolen. They were able to route all of the data in terms of exact GPS coordinates, speed, direction, heading, et cetera, to local law enforcement. And that wow. shipment was ultimately recovered. And, and all of that occurred without the shipper having to raise a finger. Whereas kind of pre- overhaul, the reality was that that shipment probably would have been stolen and gone forever. So, you know, we think overhaul is building something really unique and compelling here. And, and the last thing I'll add uh, is that because of overhaul's kind of market positioning and the ability to integrate across all of these systems and aggregate all of these various data sets, they're now able to create new products and new services that are kind of built on top of their platform. One of those products is trucking insurance. Um, 
because mm -hmm. overhaul is already monitoring these shipments from a visibility and safety perspective, they actually have a direct line of communication with the drivers as well. And what's really interesting is that they're now able to leverage their platform to kind of impact driver behavior with kind of proactive warnings, right? So they, they'll be able to tell a driver that, hey, you're entering a, uh, a geography or area that's known to have nuclear verdicts. So kind of insurance uh, verdicts over a million dollars um, and just be careful. And what they're starting to see as a result of some of this is that uh, they're reducing the risk of accidents. So anyhow, all that says we're super excited about the company. We invested in overhaul series B last year and the company has just done phenomenally well. Um, couldn't be more happy. No, that's really cool. I love technology like that, that solves a real problem. And I think that, well, obviously what you just outlined of like something's getting stolen, you can alert everybody. And it, like that to me is so cool that you could do something like that these days. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and there's this actually, there's this theme that runs through all of our investments, which is really around kind of data driven control point businesses. Right. And what I mean by that, and this starts to get into your point as well, Kevin, around solving a, a customer problem, but these are companies that are able to leverage data to create a unique barrier to entry or defensibility around themselves. And that actually starts with solving a real customer pain point which in turn enables you to access and acquire data. The best companies are then able to position themselves as kind of that central control point within the value chain, similar to what Overhaul does and build a network or ecosystem around themselves. And ultimately because they have the product that solves the customer need, the market positioning, they're actually able to deliver some really interesting, unique insights on an aggregate level that solidifies that differentiation. So that theme of kind of, that, that data enabled control point really flows through all of the investments that we make as well. And I think overhauls is a great example of that. No, very cool. So maybe do you want to give us a couple more uh, examples just so people understand the types of companies that you guys invest in? Sure. Um, so uh, another good example, and um, this is uh, another one in the mobility space. And uh, it's actually an area that we think kind of flies under the radar a little bit. Um, okay. I think folks, within the ecosystem, a lot of folks focus on kind of the autonomous driving side, the electrification side. But one of the spaces that we've dove pretty deep into is actually the connected vehicle space. And we made a bet recently into a company called Motorque. Okay. And what they are is a data infrastructure platform that enables fleets and other commercial applications to access uh, real-time data streaming from the vehicle without the need for any additional hardware or devices. And the key insight here is that vehicles are becoming connected. In fact, nearly 100% of new vehicles launched for the past couple of years have been connected. Right. The challenge has always been though that um, OEMs have been extremely guarded with this data set and, and right. rightly so because of kind of privacy and security concerns for their customers. Uh, what Motorq was able to do, however, was to really form some pretty interesting partnerships with OEMs by bringing OEMs and their largest customers who are the fleet management companies that buy thousands of cars from them every year and actually need this data to better manage their own operations. Motor brought them together at the same table and also kind of painstakingly built those consent and privacy mechanisms to make sure that, you know, everything was being handled in a compliant manner.
And so they actually work with, Motorq actually works with nine of the 10 largest OEMs wow. on one side and a range of fleet management companies, as well as other commercial applications on the other side. And it, it's actually this interesting win-win for all, all parties involved. For OEMs, it allows them to begin monetizing this vehicle data. And you know they've been talking about this for years in terms of shifting their business model from a one-time sales of the actual car to a more recurring revenue stream. Uh, for fleets and other commercial use cases like insurance, tolling, parking, whatever it might be, with a single API integration, they get access to not only a wide breadth of, um, of vehicle data, but also kind of the best quality as well. So there's no need to deploy any aftermarket hardware, use a phone, any of that. And, and Motorx sits at this kind of unique position as that infrastructure layer that powers this entire vehicle data ecosystem. And, you know, this gets back to some of what we were just talking about, Kevin, around that kind of control point thesis. Right. But what we see Motorx doing is bringing together kind of these disparate stakeholders on both sides and delivering some real value for all the parties involved. So we invested in Motorx Series A back in 2020. Um, over the past two years, they've seen tremendous growth and validation on both sides of the market, really kind of positioned themselves well to become the leader in the space. Um, and, you know, they they raised a series of B round uh, pretty recently. And, you know, broadly speaking, we think this is a really interesting space and are always kind of thinking about the applications of data and some of the new products and services that that enables as well. No, I, I think that that's really cool. And it's really cool that you got all these OEMs to actually play nice together because yep. the reality is, is I think the only way, well, not the only way, one of the big challenges of autonomous vehicles down the road will be what you just, what they basically solve for fleets is every car needs to talk to each other some way, right? That's right for it to be completely safe. And if they've already cracked that in one vertical of driving, that's actually really fascinating. I had no idea that that was, they were doing that. Yeah. And, and this is why I was mentioning kind of Kevin, that uh, it kind of flies under the radar because totally. so much attention within this industry is paid to kind of um, autonomous vehicles and the development of, of those kind of technologies, as well as the electrification side. But what's really interesting is you you have kind of connectivity, which is here today. And what we love about Motorq is that they're now enabling kind of access to that data to allow new products and new services to be built. Um, but to your point, absolutely. Uh, the vehicles will need to communicate with one another kind of in this autonomous world. And we think that Motorq is, is well positioned to, 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 to become a major player there as well. Totally. The other thing too, that's interesting about that is it took kind of an objective third party to bring all those companies together, Yeah, which is actually really fascinating. And actually, I think that maybe gives people a way to think about some of these problems in the mobility space and look at them as a different angle than I think how we've been traditionally doing it because you mentioned like, yeah, they might, it's not, as in, it's not as cool as like, look, I'm building this self-driving uh, thing that every car on the planet could just bolt on. Right. I know that's not possible, but like, right. But there's yeah. a lot of 
actual problems on the flip side of that that really need solving because like the autonomous vehicle example I just gave is already basically happening, right? And companies yeah. are sorting that out. But if they don't all talk to each other, that's the biggest problem with that. Yeah, and the interesting part of this is also around the fleets in terms totally. of the fleets don't have the ability to do one-on-one -on -one integrations with every OEM. Right. And that's actually what's been holding some of this industry back as well in terms of the connectivity side of things is because uh, a fleet is not homogenous, right? In the sense that they run GM vehicles, they run Ford vehicles, there's right. Toyota vehicles. And there's no way that they're going to be able to do integrations with every one of these OEMs. So they actually do need that neutral platform that does it for them and abstracts yeah. away a lot of that complexity. And, and we think Motor is really well positioned as a result of that. And what's, what's really interesting is that uh, a lot of these fleet management companies are now saying to Motor, well, can I white label? right? Your, your right. cloud platform and deliver insights to my end customers. You, I'm able to leverage kind of motor to access data. Now with this platform, I'm able to then use that data um, to say to my end fleets, you know, your, your mom and pop type of drivers or the, those folks that have maybe one or two or three fleet vehicles and say, hey, I can help you manage your fleet better, under, help you understand the location, help you manage you know, fuel efficiency, whatever it might be. So a lot of those solutions are, are coming into play uh, as well here. Very cool. Um, do you want to give us one more example? Uh, yeah, happy to. Um, but another one that uh, is more on kind of this infrastructure layer, we invested in a company called CarIQ. Okay. Um, they are a payment platform for vehicles. And what they do is they authenticate the vehicle itself to allow that car to pay for transactions in this, without the need for a credit card um, issued uh, by a bank. And one of the interesting use cases here is actually around the electrification side in terms of charging. Uh, the charging experience um, is great right now if you have a Tesla. It always works. You pull into the Tesla charging station. There's no kind of credit card involved. The charger recognizes your vehicles. You plug in and you're done in 20 minutes or whatever the time frame is. Now, for everybody that doesn't own a Tesla and can't pull up to a, a, a supercharger station, um, the experience is awful. Half the time, the charger yeah. doesn't work. You're having to sign on to multiple apps to pay, and it's just a very poor experience. So with Car IQ, um, the, the, they've built an interesting kind of model whereby it provides almost some of that Tesla kind of payment experience for everybody else. So with car IQ, you can pull up, uh, to a, right now you can pull up to a shell station and this is more for kind of the fleet vehicle side, but the, um, the car actually recognizes that you are, uh, next to pump five activates that pump and authorizes that transaction for you. So it, it's a very similar kind of payment mechanism and experience. And now they're starting to work with a number of these large OEMs um, to actually provide that as an in-dash experience for uh, fleet vehicles. So um, it, it, it's another one of these kind of infrastructure plays that we think is quite powerful and also flies a little bit under the radar in some sense, Kevin. Sure. Um, and so we're, we're quite excited about the company. Uh, we invest in their series A.
about two years ago. Um, since then, they've added new merchants like Shell and others to their marketplace, are continuing to grow their fleet and vehicle managed on platform, um, and just doing really well. So that's another great example. Very cool. So how does that technology work, though, without getting too technical? Like, do I need hardware at Shell and hardware in my car? Or how does that, how do they talk to each other? Yeah. So we actually generally shy a little bit away from kind of the hardware side of things. So okay. none of our investments actually require uh, additional hardware in, in that sense. And so what CarIQ does is they are able to leverage in-car sensors, meaning wow. that they understand kind of exactly kind of GPS location coordinates. Um, and they also integrate with the vendors. So in this case, Shell, but you know, in the future, kind of uh, EV charging stations to understand that your car is actually at you know pump five or charging station right. eight, and authorize that transaction. And more importantly for fleets, uh, what's actually really important for them is preventing fraud, meaning that right. um, that when you fill up that tank, that that fuel actually goes into the car. Um, or when you're charging it, actually, you're not just charging another vehicle, you're charging the fleet vehicle. And right. so car IQ is able to authenticate that transaction. And based on these sensors within the vehicle, understand that, Hey, there's actually fuel being pumped into the car or the car is getting charged, whatever it might be. So everything is integrated. There's no additional hardware required. It's all based on vehicle sensors, um, as well as kind of integrations with their merchant network. No, that's that's actually really fascinating. And you brought up something that actually I didn't even didn't even dawn on me until you mentioned it, that you could solve this, what you just outlined without hardware. Because I think a lot of people, if they came up with this idea or something similar, they would be like, well, we need to put a little like, I don't know, some sort of device on each pump at Shell. Every car needs to have some sort of device. Right. Like, I think that's how a lot of people would approach this problem. Mm -hmm. But I think the fact that they took just a software approach, obviously, you don't need to raise as much investment going through the hardware software space, not saying it's not doable because people have done it, but it's way more costly than just doing a software play. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. And, you know, the, the challenge with kind of needing to, de to deploy devices is also from the distribution side of things. And totally. a, a good example here, um, the reason why kind of, tele, I mean, telematics from a vehicle perspective has been around for a long time, but it's very much kind of relied on de aftermarket devices being installed in those vehicles. And that's sure. why telematics actually hasn't become kind of prevalent within this industry. I think right now the stats are maybe 10, 15% uh, of cars are equipped with of fleets are leveraging telematics to manage their vehicles. And part of that is because they can't afford to take down those vehicles um, to install those devices. And they may not want to, right? They don't want to pay 300, 400, $500 for a device and then can't use their cars for a day or two while that device right. is being installed at a shop. Um, and, and that makes it challenging. And so I think with a lot of these software solutions, whether you're, you think about CarIQ, whether you think about Motorque, um, these software only solutions actually makes it substantially easier on the customer's perspective as well, in terms of deploying these, uh, these solutions and the products and services built on top of them. 
No, totally. Well, and the other thing too is just the maintenance, right? And something sensors can't handle the freezing cold or snow and ice and right and or exactly. extreme heat, right? Where software, none of those are issues. Yeah. Exactly. Fascinating. Interesting. Okay. No, that okay. Maybe give me another one or two companies because I'm 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 curious about just the angles that the companies you guys have invested in is actually really fascinating. Yeah, sure. Um, I'll, I'll give you one, uh, not on the mobility side then. I'll turn sure. to kind of our other focus area, which is around kind of fintech and insurance. Um, we invested in a company called Blueprint Title. So okay. they are a title insurance company uh, direct to, to customer. So not going through uh, agents. And what Blueprint has done is built an end-to-end -end technology that enables an extremely efficient and fast closing. And, you know, maybe I'll actually take a step back here, Kevin, because I, I think title insurance is one of those industries that uh, most people know very little about. It's, okay. uh, you know, it, it just kind of comes with the closing paperwork, right? When you right. do a real estate transaction, most people you know, don't even think about it. Um, and that actually creates this interesting dynamic where the buyer of title insurance is actually not particularly price conscious in the sense, right? Because if you're buying a million dollar house or a $500,000 house, what's another $1,000 or $2,000 tacked on top of that uh, right. to ensure you have a smooth closing? And so, but as a result of that, uh, the title insurance industry is actually dominated by four large players that hold kind of 80 to 90% market share. Wow. They haven't really innovated for the past decade, probably more than decades but it's a very manual process. And on top of that, it's very profitable uh, okay. for these large folks because there's almost no claims because what title insurance guarantees or insures is that there are no past claims against your property. Uh, and it's required, right, to get a mortgage and all those elements. Right. And so while in auto insurance or in, in home insurance, you know, the loss ratios, so kind of how much the insurance company is paying out for every dollar that they take in is it can run up to 50% or, or, or even higher. Title insurance has a loss ratio of 4%, meaning that for every dollar that they take in of premium, they're only having to pay out kind of four or five cents on that dollar. Wow. Uh, so it's an extremely profitable business. And where all of the kind of the remainder of that premium goes is to pay insurance agents. So it's the insurance agents that are kind of selling to realtors at the end of the day and making sure that consumers buy their uh, title insurance. Blueprint is turning that paradigm on its head. So they are working with largely kind of investors and purchasers uh, of uh, residential real estate but going direct to that customer. And the value prop here is really uh, one of efficiency in terms of allowing you to close rather than in 30 days in substantially less time and also uh, reducing the price. Meaning that because Blueprint doesn't have to pay kind of title insurance agents, they're actually able to pass on savings to their end customers and reduce price by oftentimes up to 40% against wow. uh, you know, some of their incumbent competitors. 
And so, um, again, this is one of the industries that, uh, you know, has some really interesting dynamics that people don't often realize. Um, but we think there's a huge potential um, within this space. And so we made a bet on Blueprint earlier last year. The company is growing really well, uh, has expanded into a number of new states. Uh, and this is also a, a Nashville-based company. Um, but uh, the company is doing really well, growing uh, tremendously. So we're, we're super happy about that. And it's a good illustration of, of one of the uh, investments on our kind of fintech and insurtech vertical. No, that's that's actually really fascinating. And I, I, I know, I, I love the idea of just, and, and maybe it sounds bad to say, but those kind of like archaic companies that are just making a ton of money just because they can yeah. and like software coming in and just like wiping them out. And I don't mean that in the sense that like people lose their jobs because obviously that's terrible, but I really like that like innovation where something is so broken or so kind of outdated and technology can just like come in and solve a problem, right? And make it better for individuals and, and companies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and th there's so many uh, of those industries, Kevin, in terms totally. of that, that really haven't kind of experienced a lot of that change or have adopted software solutions. You know, uh, title insurance is, is a great example. So, there's so many kind of sub verticals within supply chain. Um, all of these uh, industries tend to have some interesting dynamics like what we talked about within title and oftentimes they also tend to be regulated meaning that yeah. there's high barriers to entry it actually takes folks with kind of some really interesting insights but also experience to be able to navigate some of those regulatory elements in order to build a successful business in those spaces totally and i think in a lot of cases a lot of those archaic companies that haven't innovated end up buying these innovative companies because they realize how much of a threat some of these will be right yep. and then the uh, the in hope that you know a bunch of people don't end up losing their jobs over all that stuff right and but i also think too the reality is is software is going to be basically in every industry and vertical inside those industries it's just happening no matter what i would yep. assume you would agree with that Absolutely. And I, I think to your point, Kevin, the, the kind of leaders within these fields are actually thinking about how do I bring in kind of external innovation, right? Totally. And because you, it actually isn't possible um, for one company to build all of the solutions out there. Totally. And so, you know, venture capital is actually one of the mechanisms and levers that some of these large corporations, including CSA use, to in-source innovation as well as to understand kind of disruption that's coming down the pipe too yeah no that that makes a lot of sense that's that's really actually quite fascinating so we kind of covered it very quickly earlier on in the conversation but i want to reiterate it again so what stage do you guys invest in and how does somebody go about actually pitching you guys yeah. So in terms of stage, we tend to be uh, early stage. So that's a, a loose definition. But for us, what that means is series A and series B. Okay. So no uh, seed or pre-seed. We 
tend to do less on the seed and pre-seed side, although okay. we do have a uh, Avanta Studios program that works with much earlier stage companies, um, oftentimes pre-institutional financed, but uh, pre-seed seed stage companies, where we'll write a smaller check uh, compared to our venture side. And the idea is to work with those startups to help them from a product market fit perspective, to help them introduce them to the right folks within CSAA, but just help them kind of grow their business. Um, so it's less focused on the investment side there and, and a lot more on kind of uh, strategic partnership for those businesses. But for the v the venture side, it's very much kind of series A, series B. Okay. So maybe let's step back a second and dive a little bit deeper into studios. So I have a company, I apply or walk us through that journey. I'm early on from maybe a napkin idea, or maybe I have a rough prototype. Yeah. Where, where can I apply to actually go to studios? And then, well, let's walk through that. Absolutely. Um, so uh, I think in terms of studios, in terms of ventures, it's very much pretty similar in, in okay. the sense that uh, we're always trying to, to find interesting companies, right? Um, and then ones that we want to work with, ones that we want to invest in. Okay. Um, so for studios, um, you know, any of your listeners can feel free to reach out to me or any of the folks on the Avanta team um, if they're building an interesting idea within kind of the mobility and, and, and fintech and tech spaces. Uh, from there, you know, we typically do a pitch session uh, on uh, a bi-weekly or monthly basis. And our program is, is more rolling rather than kind of time delineated. Got it. Uh, and during those pitch sessions, we'll invite the companies to come present us. Uh, and the whole team will be there as well as some of the mentors um, that we've built. So we built a slate of mentors to help a lot of these studios companies as well. Um, and it'll be an opportunity for them to kind of share the story with all of us and for, for folks to ask questions and understand kind of what they need help on as well. Um, and then from there, we quickly make a decision about, you know, is this the right kind of, is studios the right fit for, for the company and, and vice versa. So it's a pretty fast decision-making process as it relates to studios. Through the venture side of things, you know, we are writing larger checks. Um, and as a result, you know, we will do more diligence in terms of wanting to talk to customers, kind of understand their financials, their go-to-market strategy, all of those elements. Okay. So rough. Okay. So is there a range for a studio's kind of investment or, or what's the kind of minimum maximum you guys would put in a company there? Yep. So for studios, we, it tends to be more programmatic. So we okay. write kind of two $50,000 safe notes um, okay. for the companies. Um, but again, for studios, it, it it's a little bit less about kind of those, those small checks and a little right. bit more about delivering value in other ways to the companies in terms okay. of, helping them find customers, helping introduce them to folks at, at AAA and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. Got you. Okay. And then on the venture side, I'm assuming that if a studio studio's company is looking promising, you would potentially move them to the venture side and actually put in um, a bunch more capital or, or how does that work? Exactly. So, you know, you're, you're starting to get into some of, you know, why we do studios as well, right, Kevin? And sure. one of our big motivations is we want to get in early, right? And totally. you know, secure spot. Smart. <laughs> when, exactly. When, when the company is starting to raise their Series A. So absolutely, we love that. There's been a couple of examples um, of that. Uh, and, you know, our, our kind of venture check size for Series A is somewhere between three to five million 
Um, okay. And then for Series B companies, kind of five to seven. Uh, but very much love to in, in invest in studios companies um, on the venture side. And what what's I think great about the studios program is it allows us to start engaging and building a relationship with the teams uh, at a very early stage. So oftentimes by the time that they get to that Series A round, we've known these teams for a, a year or, or, or maybe longer. Yeah. And so we have a really good understanding of kind of the product of the team, how they execute, um, what the challenges are and where we can help uh, post-investment. Fascinating. Actually, that's really smart because one of the challenges, and I've you know talked to a number of investors in a bunch of different verticals, and they all have their advice on basically how to build relationships with them and their company before they put in money. And it's really smart to get in front of you guys as early as possible, right? And start building that relationship. Also, you could also validate the team and and how well they work together or not. Because, well, we both know that being an entrepreneur is not for everyone. That's right. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Um, and, you know, look, being a founder is hard, right? And um, one of the things that we always think about is, and, and this actually gets to some of our investment process as well, but, um, is how we can help in terms of post-investment. And we tend to, and this is another reason why we tend to be quite focused from an industry perspective, because we know these industries in and out, we tend right. to build investment theses around these industries as well. Um, and so we, we understand kind of the customers, the ecosystem and how we, what we can do to help make things a little bit easier for uh for, for the startups that we invest in in terms of introducing them to the right folks within this ecosystem to drive those partnership opportunities um and hopefully from a customer perspective as well um you know introducing them to customers that can add value uh and, and ultimately revenue uh for the company too no that that makes a lot of sense so i'm curious then with ventures or studios or both do you prefer like a warm introduction? Are you fine with the cold kind of email or phone call? Like, what are you kind of looking for with either one? Um, if you have no relationship with that person or company uh, early on? Yeah. Um, so I think the short answer there, Kevin, is that uh, a warm intro is always better in sure. the sense that, you know, if we get an intro from, uh, another investor that we know well or have invested with, if we get an intro from a portfolio company uh, CEO that we've invested in, we'll 100%, you know, absolutely take those meetings and be extremely responsive. Um, we, we try to be as responsive as possible to cold outreaches too, um, right. because we understand that, you know, uh, a lot of times a startup might not have a direct pathway to get to us and that's okay. Uh, it just tends to sit in the inbox for a little bit longer, right? So yeah, that's fair. instead of replying kind of the next day, because we have to sort through all of those companies, it might take us a week to get back to you type of thing. Yeah. Um, and, and I will say that we we also try to kind of be pretty outbound, outward facing as well. And we understand kind of the limits within our network, especially, you know, um, kind of uh, minority founders, right? Uh, right. who may not actually know folks within our network. So we actually work with different partner organizations. Uh, one good example is an organization out in Atlanta called Startup Runway, 
that whose sole mission is to connect kind of founders um, of diverse backgrounds and help them access capital. And so we partner with these organizations to reach other networks that we simply don't have to date. We can always be better, but um, you know that's one of kind of our initiatives uh, for the year as well. No, that's that's actually really cool and, and makes a ton of sense. I, I'm curious, then, what advice do you give to people, basically looking for investment in this space? Because we all know how challenging getting investment can actually be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think how, building a relationship with kind of that investor uh, is important, right? So sometimes, you know, we, we chat with entrepreneurs and they tell us the round is, is, is uh, closing tomorrow. And, you know, we say that's yeah. great. And we probably won't be able to get all of our diligence done in one day. Uh, but we wish we had, you know, kind of met you a little bit earlier. Right. So helping from a timing perspective, um, it makes it a little bit easier to have those relationships. Uh, the other element that we kind of look for, um, and, you know, this is probably more specific to Avanta, but we often like to talk to the founders about what the key insight is within some of these spaces that they're operating in. And again, we kind of talked about kind of mobility and, and kind of fintech and some of these other spaces being pretty regulated, being pretty kind of uh the dynamics within, within these industries aren't just kind of direct to consumer and so we like to see kind of what experiences that the entrepreneur has had uh that has helped them kind of develop that key insight for their business um so that's one of the things that we look for in in terms of kind of other elements of advice um Any, anything that you'd expect somebody to send you in that email whether it's cold or warm because i find some just like it's hard to say, like, what do I send you? What, what do you want to see in that email? Yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of kind of the fact, so we, we do typically ask to, to see an investor deck. Um, okay. Yeah. Gives us a little sense. bit of time to get prepared and have a fruitful kind of uh, in-depth conversation, right? Not just a, 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 an intro, here's what I do type of thing, but for, to allow us to kind of understand the business in a little bit more detail. So things like uh, what's the market opportunity, right? And that's right. not just pulled from, Kind of a Gartner report, but is a little bit more thoughtful in terms of kind of price times quantity. Uh, how much do you think you can get to in five, ten years? Right? What's the what's the challenge that you're trying to address? Some of the industry dynamics, competition, business model, all of those things that gives us a kind of overview of the business, so that when we have our first uh, conversation, it can go a little bit deeper, and we can ask those questions that help us understand kind of what's what some of the core challenges are uh and really dive a little bit deeper into the business rather than stay at kind of the superficial level no i i think that makes a lot of sense and i but we're sadly out of time i feel like we could probably go on another hour but how about we close the show with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself avanta studios and any other links you want to mention Absolutely. Um, so uh, you can find uh, most of kind of our portfolio companies as well as more uh, info around Avanta Ventures uh, on our website. So avantaventures.com is the uh, is the website. And um, uh, I'll throw a shout out to, to any of the founders listening within kind of mobility and, and, and fintech and sure tech. Um, please feel free to reach out. My email is just david at avantaventures.com um, and would love to chat with all of you. 
Perfect. And it's A-V-A-N-T-A ventures.com just for the spelling. Well, David, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show. And I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day, man. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Kevin. It was great to chat. You as well. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.